After 2,000 years, Christ's promise to return has yet to be fulfilled, or has it? In this episode, we are going to enter into the discussion of Christ's return. In the Christ re return of Christ, the second coming, it is the topic of article number 15 in the Church of the Nazarene Manual. And it is an essential part of Christian doctrine, and as the body of believers, regardless of our denomination or non-denomination, it's one that we should spend some time considering and familiarizing ourselves with. And we're going to explore Christ's return and the questions that are often asked, as well as the questions that should be asked and may not be thought of often. And we're going to dive into the terminology that the church uses concerning the second advent, and terms such as advent are one of those. And certainly there are some things that we know about Christ's returns, but there are also a stark reality that there are many elements of this that we do not know and we cannot explain. And they will only be revealed at that glorious moment. So, welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. And today we'll be discussing Article Number 15 in the Church of the Nazarene. And I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. Here with me in the studio are several others, and I'll let them share their names as well. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. I'm Pastor Anthony Alegria. I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And we would like to just throw this out there. We thank you for joining us. Remember to be supporting your local church. Find a local fellowship to be involved with. If you would like to grab a link to our content, just hit like or share. That would do a tremendous amount for us. You can donate monetarily at patreon.com slash kingdomofthelogos. So today we are going to be talking about Article 15, the second advent, the second coming of our Lord Christ Jesus. But before we get there, I just kind of want to open up with this question of, for everyone here, all the other pastors that are here in the room, how often do you actually talk with people about the second coming? Or maybe I should say, when we look at the modern Christian culture and we look around us, how often do we hear serious conversations about the second coming? It's something which, you know, you find it in the Apostles' Creed. People often read that out loud. It's in a lot of our theology. It works its way into different songs and things. But how often do we actually see real conversations about this? I mean, even the manual's article is rather short. What do y'all think? Is it something that we talk about frequent enough in the church? Pastor Mike? I don't think it's uh, talked about as frequent as it used to be, and it definitely should be talked about more because it is a vital part of our, our understanding of uh, the journey that we're on. So, yeah. Pastor Amanda, do y'all talk about it much? Um, I think it comes in waves. Uh, currently, no, I don't think we've had the discussion a lot. Um, at Trinity, uh, we did have a short series on Revelation, on some select passages through the book of Revelation. Um, but I think Pastor Mike did really well setting it up to where a lot of the kind of normal questions you would anticipate in that kind of topic were answered in the sermon. So we didn't have a lot of long discussions. Um, anytime there's kind of a big blurb in like kind of uh, like me big media, Christian media, then like, you know, when they redid um, left behind a couple years ago we had some questions uh, last year there was a poster on one of the main roads in nashville saying the end of the world was happening sometime in september so like those kinds of incidents bring out the discussion a little bit more um deliberately but uh, most of the time i think people um they kind of want to hear about it but also the point of the church i think in that discussion is also to talk about connect it to them today yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of discussion kind of goes back and forth, but um, right now we haven't talked about it too much. Yeah, it's something where it always kind of goes in a interesting, 
almost sci-fi weird culty thing quickly because mm-hmm. you get a lot of people who are like, well, are we millennialist or are we post-millennialist? Or we say, well, Christ is going to come and reign for a thousand years. And then people say, oh, he's going to come back on 11, 11, 11, or maybe he's going to come back on, you know, 12, 27, 27 or something like that. They always get these specific dates and people really get into that. And then it doesn't happen, which has always bewildered me. Like we're clearly told not to anticipate this and do things in the sense that we anticipate and put a date on it, we're kind of to have a, a anticipation that is more or less constantly prepared. You know, you've got your soul in the right place, but you're not supposed to be sitting around with little mathematical formulas figuring out. So it's always been a little bit weird to me. Uh, Anthony, you have any thoughts on this before we head on and actually read the article? Uh, I would say people really don't normally talk about it, even though people are really interested in it. And well, I think that's, that's true. just yeah. I think that's just because there are so many like there's not a lot of clarity and you also don't want to become associated with cult yeah with the the cultish things and so like people are really scared of that they don't want to start asking questions about it and then fall into cultish things or hear things that sound like that as well you know and again there's not a lot of media and our culture and also people who fall into cultish cultish things very quickly have really obscured a lot of the orthodox ideas around the resurrection whenever um if you just pay attention to what the scripture says and what things like the apostles creed the apostles creed says really you'll get a orthodox simple idea and anything beyond that you can just interpret as you know the peripherals yeah it does sound often like when you hear people talk about this it, it it doesn't go into like the ufo bigfoot language <laughs> but oftentimes it would kind of be nicely situated between that when things get out of hand when they move away from those orthodox thinkings pastor amanda well i think this leads us very much into like the historical context of this article yeah. um and this talks about even some so you know we're we're in nashville we're near trevecca university and mcclurkin was the the founder of the university one of them he had kind of several different reasons he never officially joined the Church of Nazarene, but one of them was he disagreed with their stance on this topic about the second coming. And the our early church fathers and mothers in the Church of the Nazarene had great wisdom when they created and crafted this article that they didn't get muddled by those things like you were talking about, about rapture and tribulation and pre or post or mid or whatever. Um, instead, they just kind of stuck with the basics of scripture as Anthony, Pastor Anthony was talking about. Um, and so that they could kind of just clearly articulate to all people, regardless of where they stood on some ideologies, what the foundation of our, our theology, our ecclesiology uh, really was about. And really, when it comes to this, the return of the Lord Christ Jesus, the second advent, it's a thing. Like, yeah. this is an important part of just standard Christian thinking. So we're not here to, to minimize that. However, it can turn into murky waters when people start wanting to explain away the mystery. A lot of times you see heresies, you see some things which are not quite straight ways of thinking. They kind of get bent, they get unorthodox. And again, orthodox, if you stand that, or spend some time studying that word, ortho, straight, doxy, sort of the revelation of the divine. The correct way of thinking about this is that there is a lot of mystery around it, and we're told to kind of accept that, and that's okay. And it's inexplicable. So even if you're not okay with it, you're not going to explain it away. Like, that's just not going to happen. It's just, yes, it's not going to happen. Pastor Anthony? Well, we should definitely keep in mind that Jesus said, not even the Son knows the day. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just if you really want to feel like you know more than Christ, be your own guest, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) for real. But, you know, 
When well, it comes that, down to specifics like days and uh, things of that nature, leave that yeah. to the Father. We're, we're going to get to some of this scripture in a bit, but let's go ahead and read the article. Uh, Pastor Amanda, would you lead us in reading Article 15 in the Nazarene Manual? All right. So Article 15, Second Coming of Christ. It says, We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ will come again, that we who are alive at his coming shall not precede them that are asleep in Christ Jesus, but that if we are abiding in him, we shall be caught up with the risen saints to meet the Lord in the air, so that we shall ever be with the Lord. You know, this may be an unpopular opinion for me to say, but I think a lot of people may agree with me. I actually think probably Articles 14, 15, and 16 may be some of the best written. They're short and concise. Um, I think they're well stated, and they say everything they need to be that you can come up and read this and walk away understanding. A lot of times when we look at some of the articles in the manual, people get hung up in the weeds, and like with sanctification, people just get really mad. Like the whole baggage that comes with that, like it, it turns into something where, where some people feel lost if they're lay people, and then people... They always are kind of turn like it's some secret knowledge that you've got to protect. And there's really a very small amount of people I've experienced that can come and maturely um, handle the culture around a lot of that. But when it comes to these later articles, which aren't discussed much, I think they're beautifully written. You can read through them. You get what they're saying. And they explain all the orthodoxy in a very, very simple, very direct way. Um, So let's discuss some of the, the language that is found in this article. It's a wonderful article. It's written very well. Uh, But there's some language in there that we really need to expand on. And the first of those words that we find in there is the word saints. Now, going back up to the the article, um, you will find that it says that if we are abiding in him, we shall be caught up with the risen saints to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall ever be with the Lord. Now, many of us, if you're not familiar with church language, many of us come to the question and say, okay, well, preacher, what does it really mean to, to be a saint? You know, I think I saw this one person, maybe I was a child and there was this this person, you know, they were my grandparents' age or maybe my great-grandparents' age and they were such a holy person. I remember them praying when I was little and I said, you know, that person, when they die, they might become a saint. And we even look to things like the, the high churches, something like Roman Catholicism, maybe the Eastern Orthodox, and you say, you know, they've got their, their, their saints and people who have been recognized in that way. And, you know, that's something which is an exclusive list. There's not a lot of people that make it there. And so many times we've kind of taken the concept of saints and separated it from the normal Christian. And by normal Christian, I mean someone who has confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, they have accepted salvation, they have been regenerated, and the Holy Spirit is working in their life to come and move them away from sin and towards the holiness of God. They've been saved from sin and healed to Christ-likeness. But somebody talked to me, what does the word saint itself actually mean? Pastor Mike. Well, I think if you look back to the Greek language with the hagioi, it has that same uh, root word hagios, which means holy, uh, but it is uh, all the saints, uh, those who have been made holy, the holy ones, and there's different ways of translating that, saint being more of a, a Latin word. Um, and so, uh, nonetheless, it, it holiness is really uh, acquired by who it belongs to, which is God. And so anything that belongs to God the Father is holy. And so, you know, as we see uh, people and believers that give themselves to God, then that that is where holiness is derived. So it's not just on their works. And thank God for uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians because, you know, constantly Paul refers to them as saints, 
Uh, some would say that's sarcastic, but no, I do really and truly believe that, that Paul is uh, you know, referring to them as God's holy people, but their actions really aren't looking like it. And so he calls them out on that and says, if you're going to belong to God, then there is a way to live in God's household. All right, Pastor Amanda. Well, and I think this is very, the who can be saints question or what are saints or who are saints is very much tied to our theology of sanctification. And I think this is what Pastor Mike was talking about. Um, but to just add, I guess, my comment to it is, in our tradition, we believe that sanctification can happen in this lifetime. Therefore, we can be saints now. Yeah, and I think a good understanding of saints is people living holy lives. Um, so is a very realistic expectation that if you are a Christian, who the work of the Holy Spirit is bringing you towards Christ-likeness, it's not unreasonable to use the language of saints. Now, don't be pompous and arrogant. People <laughs> take it out of context and, and do that. But realistically, this was not ever meant to be something which was unattainable, distant, far off, and just totally otherworldly. Um, well, to your point, it's definitely um, in bad taste to call yourself a saint. We're not saying to try to go to doing that. Um, even John Wesley who is extremely uh, influential on the holiness movement, wrote that it was just unwise whether or not you were sanctified to answer for that sanctification and to say that you were sanctified unless it was necessary for the development of another Christian. Yeah. And so <clears throat> that's really one of the only times that it's appropriate. It's better just to leave it alone. Part of the reason is because if people challenge your sanctification and you really are sanctified, then it's considered a blasphemy by his logic. Yeah. So um, it's just it's very bad keeping to tell people that unless it is important for someone else's development. Um, yeah. And just to add to what Anthony's saying on the word sanctification, that it goes to holiness and and uh, saints, and so you can hear the two the the uh, the resemblance there in the words and the etymology. Well, sure, yeah, but they, it is holy they have that sanctos. Uh, and so don't forget that belonging to God, yeah. we are very humble. So uh, like Anthony said, go around saying, you know, the, hey, I'm a saint. Well, that's that's uh, very uh, inappropriate. doesn't follow how Christ Jesus walked the face of the earth. Yeah, and to uh, Amanda's point, I think she also is kind of jokingly saying, you know, or if you're you're in a district licensing position, which, which yeah, is something that is so funny, yeah. which has bewildered me because I know with, with my personal experience, there have been a lot of people who have taught young ministers who say, well, even if you're sanctified, don't tell people that. Don't don't be one who says that. And then they put you in a position where they're like, well, are you? And like a lot of people, they, they don't know how to reconcile that. It's a hard fence to to kind of straddle. That is and something it, that I wondered about whenever I was filling yeah. out the papers myself. It asked if yeah. I was sanctified, and I was like, hmm. And, and I think that's <laughs> the, the church's attempt to... Um, to judge and to judge rightly. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, sometimes we're, we're not quite sure how to to judge rightly and so we try to lean back on these these terms yeah and so um mm -hmm. and, and it uh, yeah it does get out of hand sometimes especially but, when people have differences of opinions on how to handle that stuff <laughs> exactly. yeah it gets it gets pretty pretty crazy pretty quick but I, I think we're getting close to getting ourselves fired um and off topic so let's let's continue um, on our terminology yeah let, let's go back to the gospel that's a good place to go from there <laughs> so let's go to the gospel of matthew uh chapter 25 anthony would you read us verses 31 and 32 31 and 32. Yes, Matthew 5. Okay, sorry. I, I read this in... 25. All right, Matthew 25 or 5? 25. Right, sorry about that. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of glory. All of the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from one another as a, sh as a shepherd separates the sheep 
from the goats. Okay, so when discussing saints, we find scripturally that there are the sheep and the goats. Um, and I'm not here to have a debate about livestock, even though <laughs> I've kind of got sheep. I like dogs. Um, <laughs> throw that out there. Dogs are good. Um, but there are the sheep that belong to the shepherd, and then there are the goats. And there is the saints, and then there are those who are, you know, they're not condemned because Christ came to condemn the world. But as we understand it, the world naturally is pretty good at finding condemnation. And when those haven't turned back towards God, back towards the salvation found in Christ Jesus, you know, they're, they're not part of the flock. And there is a reality that there are the saints. However, we should understand that to be one of the sheep, one of the those who are shepherded by Christ Jesus, well, we, we have to enter into that. It's not something which is, is an unreasonable um, expectation, though the salvation through Christ Jesus comes at a high cost and it does demand transformation out of us, um, it is a beautiful thing. Let's go on to our next topic here and let's talk about asleep in the Lord. Now, when we read our Article 15, um, again, we get this language that there are going to be risen saints coming to, to meet the Lord. And also we get this language that there are those that have been asleep in Christ Jesus. And now we understand that there's going to be a resurrection. So the saints that have come before, they'll rise up. But also we find this language that they are asleep in the Lord. And now this is something which I think is a beautiful use of language that I think in the modern day and age we should actually adopt. We should get back to using this quite frequently. Um, this idea that when one passes, when the breath of life leaves this corpse, you know, this material thing that we're kind of confined in, that we have fallen asleep in the Lord. You know that simple phrase, it has a whole world packed into it, a whole world of theology. Anthony? Well, it is a phrase that does articulate well um, ideas of the eschaton. And so rather, you know, a lot of time it's, it's thought that as soon as you die, you go into heaven and you spend the rest of your eternity with God. But um, there are also some variations on that where, you know, uh, especially in early Christianity, where the belief was that you fell asleep in the Lord, you were comforted in your time of waiting. And then after the resurrection, after the second coming, um, whenever all the world was recreated in the image of God, then you enjoyed eternity with heaven and with uh, the Son of God. But, um, you know, that's just the language there. I think it articulates it well. Yeah, I think it does it well, too. Again, I'm not here to explain the mysteries of this. Um, that's not in um, my job description. I don't think anybody really expects that. But I will say sort of like the, the simple answer is I think God can sort out that. But um, on a more deeper answer, we know that God is not limited to time with some specifics. And we know that even space and mass have influence on time. You know, if an astronaut goes out into space and he carries a watch, you know, come back, the time will be different because as you get away from gravity and the mass of the earth, things change. Um, as we leave this material plane, the influences of time are certainly going to be different. And God is more than capable of handling that. Um, so again, Anytime you try to explain away these mysteries, problems happen. But this theology of being asleep in the Lord, I think is very good. As Anthony articulated that those who fall asleep, they are comforted. They are in the presence of the Lord. And it kind of points to what it means to be in that kind of window between one's passing and one at the, the end when we see Christ coming in the end of this era and the going into the new era, that second advent. Um, Pastor Mike. Well, on a on a shallower side, and uh, I guess um, you know, I just want to make clear uh, and clarify that those who are asleep in the Lord are not those who are uh, listening to my sermon on Sunday morning in the pew <laughs> that are sleeping. Um, 
and they are not going to be, you know, those we'll who get the front not. seat. Yeah, well, you know, we, we that when so don't con, uh, don't get that confused, and that's just on the shallow side. But on the deeper side, there is a concern uh, for those in uh, Thessalonica or Nike, however you want to say that. Uh, but the in Paul's Paul addresses that in the letter of Thessalonians to those. And let's go ahead and read that. Um, Anthony, would you read for us from Thessalonians four there? First Thess- Thessalonians, man, we've all messed that up. First Thessalonians four thirteen, but we do not want you to be uniformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died. Uh, so that's that you- uninformed. Uninformed. Thank yep. you. I think Sorry that's about a- that. Okay. <laughs> You're going back to the, again, I want to make sure that we clarify that. I don't want us to confuse those who are asleep and uninformed, but he wants us to be, uh, I mean, uninformed rather than uniform. Go ahead. Well, I guess I was uh, uninformed about how to read. But anyways, (laughs) but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about these who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Yeah, and I think using the language "asleep in the Lord" helps encourage in that way, and I think it points people in the right direction. So I just think it's a beautiful use of language, and I think it's one that we should be more um, prominent about here in the church. All right, well, let's get to another word. Now, this is one that is not actually found in Article 15, but it's a very important one nonetheless, and that's the, the term Advent. Now, typically when we, we hear Advent, we think something like Christmas. But with what we just heard from Thessalonians, and we see that Paul paints a beautiful picture about this concept of Advent, where there is something going to happen where we will be with the Lord forever, and we can have in, a good amount of encouraging in our soul about this. We can be encouraged from that. But the church should use this terminology of the second advent to describe the coming of Christ. Now, advent means coming. It's the arrival. But it has the same etymology from the word that we are more accustomed to hearing, adventure, where something has arrived, where there is there is a an advent of something. So let's talk here a little bit about advent. I know we had wanted to use the clip with... Um, Bilbo? <laughs> Bilbo Baggins. Um, we didn't really get that worked into the program today. But um, y'all talk with me a little bit about Advent and how that's a very important aspect of the second coming or the second Advent. Why is that language used there? Well, I think um, so in, in the church calendar, maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar with that. Advent is the season that, that precedes Christmas, and it is the first season in the liturgical calendar, in the church calendar. And it is about that something is coming. It's not quite here yet. But it, but, but it is breaking in and that we, then our response is to prepare for this thing that is coming. And I think that beautifully ties in then with the second advent. So when Christ comes again, 
um, is that something is happening. Something has already kind of broken in. It's not here in its fullness quite yet, but the kingdom is, is building and it's growing. And our response is to pray for it. And so I, I think as we look, um, as we looked at Paul's passage to the church in Thessalonian or the Thessalonian church, it, it really is this idea, okay, what do you need to do? Well, you need to be informed, not uninformed, but you need to be informed. You need to encourage one another. You need to proclaim this gospel, this good news, that you are participating in this kingdom that is here and not yet. And so we get to live in this um, beautiful um, error, uh, waiting for, for Christ's second advent. And one day the kingdom will come in its fullness and we have to be prepared. And I know in a different passage, and we may uh, get to that later, but it talks about not being found asleep when Christ comes. And that's different than how Paul uses it. Basically, it says you better be prepared. Yeah. Um, you know, not caught off guard, but that when Christ comes, you it's not a surprise. It's not something to freak out over because... You know, you already are ready for it. You have your bags packed, so to speak. Um, you're you're ready for that trip, uh, I guess we can say. But um, yeah, so there there's preparation in the advent. It is not simply waiting as in sitting back, but it is actively preparing uh, for what is about to happen. You know, another reason why I like advent is it's a word that means arrival, and when something arrives, that implies that it has been before. And by been before, you mean it has existed, like it has in, been in a state of being before. And we think of the advent of Christ through Mary. This is not the beginning of, of the Son. And I think uh, St. Patrick puts it best in his uh, confession where he writes about how the Son was begotten by the Father before time in some inexplicable way. Now, he's not trying to be mysterious about that or you know, some sort of cop-out from giving a, a good explanation, but he's just saying you can't explain it. And when Christ came there and through the advent, the, the advent there with Mary um, in Bethlehem, it wasn't the, the beginning of all of this work. It wasn't the beginning of the Son of God. It wasn't the beginning of God's redemption for creation, but it was part of a larger plan that God had. And we have the second advent, and using the word advent there, it reminds us it is the arrival. It is the arrival of something which has already been planned out. This is part of God's work. This is part of God's grace. God's grace has been continually active in creation. And when you use that word arrival, it kind of indicates to us that the, the work and the grace of God has been there before. Um, and I'll abstain from going on into to prevenient grace, though. I like to, <laughs> to be there. Pastor Mike. Well, I like the uh, word ad, advent. And, and I know, uh, I think you or Pastor Amanda uh, acknowledged, you know, the the uh, etymology and ad of adventure and how they both share and so it, you know there's a sense of an adventure and an advent there's still that mysterious side that we don't know exactly what's going on uh, for sure but at the same time uh, there is the arrival of a person it, mm -hmm. and it's an event a thing and um, it, it doesn't mean that we have to know all the details but there when we go on an adventure there's a certain amount of thrill and even risk and so I, I like the uh, analogy that uh, one of you all used with uh, Bilbo Baggins how uh, once he makes his mind up to go on the adventure, he's running, trying to catch up with uh, the, the group. And, uh, you know, he's made that. He's like, I'm on an adventure. And he doesn't know all the risks, all the, the trials and everything that may come with that. 
but he has made his mind up and he is extremely excited, uh, stimulated, and full of, um, uh, you know, he's got a great thrill uh, of being a part of that. And so the Advent invites us to be a part of yeah. the adventure. And, of course, the sermon series that I'm preaching right now is called The Adventure of Holiness. And we've been looking at the call to holiness that we have, and it is an adventure. It's a dangerous and entertaining adventure. Um, it's filled with sorrow and joy. And, you know, a lot of times when we look at even the, the Holy Family, we look at, at Mary and Joseph, they were called to the adventure of holiness too. But what that looked like for them was just being a family, being that, that family unit. And when God sends his begotten son, begotten before time and son inexplicable way when he is sent to be fully human in full human form God doesn't tell Mary and Joseph you know you've got to go overthrow a kingdom and have this this son raised in the nicest palace on the world the only expectation that he has of Mary and Joseph is that they'll be an upstanding righteous God-fearing Jewish family um, that they'll just be a righteous family and you know there's a huge call to to adventure that is found even in that and now Mary and Joseph too certainly have a um, more theatrical adventure going down towards Egypt and things like that. There's a lot of things that go there which do bring a lot more, um, you might say, drama to it, though it's really tragic the reasons why. But really the expectations that God has, it says the, the adventure of holiness, sometimes that means you are at your home being the most righteous person that you can be, and my grace will work through you to take you to that place of righteousness. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. All right, so we've talked a lot about the language of of the second coming and a few other aspects of it but let's talk a little bit more now about what one can expect with the second coming because from the time of the ascension of of jesus christians have been looking with anticipation to the return of jesus to set things right but there's always the question of what does it mean for him to come back and set things right and again a lot of people try to explain away this mystery with all these different things but there is a sincere question that people have about when Christ returns, you know, this idea that all things will be set in their proper order, all things will be set right. You know, what, what does this phrase really mean? Pastor Amanda? Uh, when it, we were talking about this, I, I immediately remembered, um, I, I grew up either in private Christian schools or, or going, or was homeschooled, and uh, one time there was a Bible lesson, um, and this teacher, like, I don't know if you, they used to have these little cards with pictures on them, and on the back had this Bible story lesson on it. Anyways, I remember very distinctly, they held up the picture, and there's some place in Revelation where it talks about the dimension of uh, the new Jerusalem and it's basically like a cube and so in this picture she was holding up was like this cosmic uh, background with this giant cube that was coming down uh, from the heavens and she was like this is what heaven's gonna look like uh, this is basically the answer what is all things uh, what does it mean for all things to be set right and for th whoever illustrated for them it looked like a giant cube and I always thought that was so silly um, as a child and even growing up I'm like this is really a weird imagery but I say that to your point in the sense of it's just, we do, we try to figure this out. What does it mean? And I think it's just basically saying like, you know, in the beginning, God created a perfect earth where where animals didn't have to fight, where humanity didn't have to toil either with creation or with themselves or even within themselves or with God. They walked with him in this, this great intimacy and, and relationship. And I think that's what we look forward to in the eschaton. This is what we look forward to in the second coming, the second advent, when all things will be set right, is that we live as a holy people in a broken world today, but one day we will live as holy people in a holy world. Well, with that beautiful imagery, let's go to the Gospel of Mark. 
and um, get something which brings us a little bit more um, abrupt imagery. Um, Pastor Anthony, would you read from us from the Gospel of Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 24? But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And let's skip down to verse 32 there and pick up again. But about that day or hour, no one knows neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. All right, and again, that reminds us, if you were in the business of predicting the second advent. Might be in the wrong business. You might be in the wrong <laughs> business. Um, that's a big takeaway from this. But it is going to be a very powerful thing. It's profound. I mean, it's extraordinarily profound. It's very very vital to our understanding of who we are as Christians. There's a lot of hope in this. It's a beautiful thing, but also it it's, you know, shaking the cosmic understanding we have of, of everything now apart and replacing it with a glory that is beyond um, imagination. Pastor Anthony. We know this for sure. According to Amanda's teacher, there will be absolutely no rectangular prisms. <laughs> there will be no rectangles. There will be no widescreen. Instagram got it right from the beginning. There's only going to be squares, no widescreen, and the world truly will be perfect then. Yes. Yeah, I actually think Star Trek may have got that right too. There's an episode where there's a little space buoy they, they encounter. It's a cute floating room. Um, who would have known? Oh my. Well, and I think in this passage and some other things we're talking about, these images, uh, we have to put them in their right place. Um, you know, because a lot of people say, okay, we got to find when the sun will be darkened and the moon, you know, stop shining. I think there's another passage, either a gospel or, or one of Pauline's letter, where, or maybe even Revelations, where it talks about the moon turning to blood. And so a lot of people think, okay, that means when, like, the harvest moon or something like that. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. This is just to, to, what pa to reiterate what Pastor Dylan said earlier. This is just to show the great cosmic scale of what Christ's return is going yeah. to be. It, it's not to give us... Um, Hollywood imagery. It's not not to to um to create some kind of theatrical moment for the sake of theatrics. It's to say that the very fabric uh, of time and space is consumed by the holiness of God. Um, and this I think also can harken back to um, uh, Christ's death on the cross, where the sky is darkened in the middle of the day, where where the, there's an earthquake and the veil is torn in the temple. It's something about. When, when God is at work, it's not a small thing. Yeah. Uh, the very very way we relate to creation, the very way creation works, gets reworked uh, under the authority of God. And so that's what this is trying to point us towards. And so we do have to be careful about trying to use this imagery as a way to predict, because then we try to trust in the means of grace versus the grace itself. Yeah. Um, we're trying yeah. to rely on the images versus the power behind them. Yeah, sort of like, you know, people... I hate to say it, but some of the, the leaders at the time of Jesus, they kind of forgot that the law was an instrument of, of God, and it was not God. Um, so let's close with this question. So every generation has believers who have stated that they believe Christ will return in their lifetime. And again, we'll just sort of end abruptly. 
Pastor Amanda, do you have any thoughts on what will happen to, to people who have that sort of sincere, sincere. conviction that, that Christ is returning? Well, and I think some of it relies on the language of it. And I remember um, I grew up going to camp meeting. And so um, just kind of that old-fashioned holiness camp meeting preaching style. And I remember this one minister talking about how his his uh, grandfather would preach and say that Christ is returning in his lifetime, and he died. His father uh, would preach that Christ would return in his lifetime, and he died. And so then this man comes and says, Christ is going to come in my lifetime. And I'm not sure if he's still living or not. But I think the point he was trying to make is even if the second advent doesn't happen in your lifetime, that you will still, the resurrection is still possible for yeah. you. That there is still hope. That there is still this anticipation of, of all things being set right. Even if it won't happen in this grand cosmic scale that we see in the gospel of Mark. Uh, that each of us will still experience the, the hope of the second coming. And so I think that's what, if, if we're talking about it in that way, then yes, all of us will um, can have assurance that, that there will be wholeness with Christ in our lifetime. Uh, however, if we're, we're trying to go with a more uh, fundamentalist, literal sense, then, then we're going to find ourselves in a little bit of trouble. Uh, but no, but I think we each and every believer... Uh, has hope for themselves and for their loved ones uh, that the resurrection is a reality for all of us and not just for those who uh, reach whatever in time Armageddon-esque thing may or may not happen. Yeah, and we can have assurance in that. This is really where we get to the, the theology of assurance. Um, and if we were good holiness preachers, we would break into the Bless song, assurance. Blessed Assurance. <laughs> of course, of course. But for time purposes, we must go. So we thank you for joining us. Again, we hope this conversation brought you something uh instrumental in, in understanding a little bit about the second coming. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments about anything, please do send them to us. With that, God love you and have a blessed day.